Welcome to Soaring the Sky, Glider Pilots Podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I will be your host. Thank you for listening. Our audience has definitely been growing, and I greatly appreciate each and every one of you taking your time out of your busy schedule and checking us out. Today, our guest, Miguel Intermende. Miguel is a native Spaniard, but has called his home Florida for the past 20 years. Miguel holds degrees in aeronautical science, space studies, and flight test and evaluation. He's graduated as a test pilot from the National Test Pilot School. He possesses over 10,000 flight hours and 12 pilot and command type ratings in jets and heavy turboprops. Miguel works as a DoD contractor as a test pilot and a flight test engineer. He's also an instructor, pilot, and examiner for a simulator flight training provider. Miguel enjoys flying different aircraft and has flown over 130 different types. Miguel is also part of the Perlin Project. Miguel, great to have you today. Nice to be here. Your adventure in aviation, where did that all get started? Grew up in the 70s in Europe, in, in Madrid, Spain, and uh, you know, grew up uh, watching the... Uh, uh, some of the uh, space uh, launches and you know some of the aviation movies and uh, grew up being fascinated by it. In high school, I started flying and came to the United States when I was 18 for college. Got all my license and started working as a professional pilot. Basically, when I was 21 years old, uh, went to test pilot school. Later on, uh, in my early 30s, and been flying for over 30 years now. I would imagine. And you've flown quite a few airplanes then. Yeah, I've been blessed that I've been able to fly the, many different airplanes. I'm type rated as a pilot in command in 12 of them. I've flown uh, a few gliders as well. I love flying in general, anything, helicopters, what? balloons, gliders, anything that flies. What brought you to gliders? How did you discover those? Yeah, so that's that's kind of a funny story. I never flown a glider until I went to test pilot school. And they have, uh, in test pilot school, you fly normally 14, 18, 20 different airplanes. And each airplane is based on a module where you study something, you know, that is appropriate for that aircraft. And one of them was uh, gliders. I got to fly a, a glider for the first time with an, uh, an astronaut, actually, somebody that just recently passed away. And uh, I fell in love with it automatically. You know, it was like, wow, this this is cool. That's where, where I started. Who did you fly with, the astronaut? Uh, yeah, uh, his name is Rick Seaforce. He was uh, three times a space shuttle uh, commander, and he recently passed away uh, over the summer. I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm that is nice that you got to have that experience with him. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, he was a great instructor, a great person, and I got lucky. Uh, I got to fly with him and, you know, got to know him a little bit. Now, how did you feel about gliders when you, when you first started flying gliders? Because you'd flown all these other airplanes before that. What did it feel like when you got into the glider compared to power? Yeah, it was so cool. It was uh, quiet and just, you know, having the air brakes uh, and no throttle, you know, it's kind of a reverse thing of <laughs> how we do things on the power uh, world. It was just, I fell in love immediately with it. I thought, uh, wow, the opportunities to explore here are, are huge. And then then I didn't get my license at that point. I uh, I, I just flew around and I did the module for, for a school, for the test pilot school. And when I came back to, to Florida, I took a couple of lessons in Seminole Lake. And somebody said, hey, you, you got to go to uh, Tampa. They have uh, the Tampa Bay Soaring Society. 
And so it took me about a year. I was really busy with work and so on. And that's where I met uh, Bruce Patton, uh, who was the president at the time and super nice guy. And, and he taught me how to fly gliders. Yeah, Bruce is great. We just had him on the podcast and, and we were speaking about that. Yeah, genuinely so- a, a really nice person. You know. Also, he, he helped me because my schedule was very chaotic. Still is, and and so I needed somebody kind of that could kind of uh, adapt to to the crazy travel schedule that I have, and he did that for me, and because of that I was able to get my license. So you flew gliders for a while, and there's a project that a lot of pilots, especially, are familiar with, the Perlan project. How did that happen? Yeah, it was because of Bruce. Again, um, Bruce told me, uh, you know, have have you flown on Wave? And and I said no. I, haven't done any wave soaring at all and he said well there's this place in Minden near Lake Tahoe Minden Nevada and they have once a year a wave camp he told me how he went a few years back and he was able to get on wave and uh, went to the top of of the wave window which was 28,000 feet and uh, got his diamond uh, pin and his Lenny one Lenny pin and and how beautiful of experience it was and so i was fascinated by it then i i went to the website of soaring mb and i saw that aner uh Ener Bolson, the founder of perline and a, a really famous test pilot for uh, nasa flew everything really uh, an iconic individual inside of the uh, uh flight testing community uh, he was going to be there talking about perline so i thought i was sold on the idea. So I went to Bruce and I said, hey, will you come with me? This was six years ago. And he said, yeah. And so we went and I met with Einar and Ed Warnock, the CEO of the project. And I, you know, I told him how I've been following Perlan since Perlan 1, uh, Steve Fawcett. I, I, I knew Steve Fawcett as well. And they asked me for my resume. And then they asked me if I wanted to uh, volunteer with them. And I did. And that's how I got involved in the project. Wow, that is absolutely amazing yeah yeah it's, it's it was uh, you know one of those things that and by the way the very first time i went on wave i went with bruce and um we got to the top of the wave uh window to twenty eight thousand feet my very first time and in the same day in the afternoon i went by myself and i i i was able to get on wave again and over five days i got in wave five times uh, the first time with bruce and then uh uh, four other times by myself so I was at that point I was sold on the idea I'm like I'm gonna be coming back here to to Minden for the rest of my life this is just incredible it's so beautiful so calm so serene the views are incredible uh, worth every penny so 28,000 feet that that is amazing yeah yeah it's and and anybody can do it by the way at the time I had a I had exactly a hundred hours of glider flying over a three or four year period and uh, so I wasn't especially um, experienced as a matter of fact to tell you the truth I had 92 hours and the insurance form said you must have 100 hours so I I thought well I got almost 10,000 hours of flying other things and uh, so I'm, I'm gonna count eight hours for that 10,000 hours and I'm gonna say I, I have 100 hours yeah um, thank you good <laughs> you're more than qualified I thought that I probably out of the 10,000 hours, I, I flew without an engine at least eight hours. So I, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's funny because I uh, I became really good friends with the owner of the business and with her husband. And I just talked to them today 
before now. I'm, I'm going to see them in about a month when I go to Minden for Wave Camp again. Oh, I would like to experience that. Yeah. Uh, it, Wave Camp is great because if you want to meet basically the best cross-country pilots in the world and all of the Perlan people and, and even see the Perlan, uh, we all go to this Wave Camp. Uh, the Perlan hangar is, you know, two, two doors down from where they do Wave Camp. And um, we always... Uh, ended up talking at, at the wave camp and uh, uh, there's really interesting people there from not not just from Perlin, from all over the world. What happened next with the Perlin project over some of your experiences with them? Yeah, so I started at that point, they were about to run out of money for the second time. And uh, of course, Steve Fawcett passed away after Perlin won. And uh, we had some money uh, from some donors, and but it was running out. And we were trying to finish the project. We were about 75% done at that time, but we didn't have the funding. So we were trying to come up with who will give us the funding to finish the project. So we went to Boeing, and Boeing said, uh, thank you, but no thank you, basically. And somebody said, you, you ought to try Airbus, and most of us are either residents or, or citizens in, in the U.S. And so it's an American project. We thought funny about doing that, but it was getting pretty desperate. We didn't have any money. And so we pitched this to uh, to the Europeans. And uh, they said, well, sounds crazy, but why don't you bring five people here to Europe and we'll listen to your ideas. And so we did. And, uh, you know, we put out a technical presentation. They got a, a lot of their experts asking questions and they went for it. They became um, the people that saved the Berlin. Oh, wow. And so that was about five years ago. And, you know, we told them that, that we needed about a year and a half to finish the glider or so. And, and we did. We did the first flight maybe a month or so behind a schedule. And then after that, of course, you know, like many, many aerospace organizations, we did the first flight and the airplane wasn't really finished. You know, it had flight controls, but uh, it, it couldn't pressurize. It didn't have a life support system. They didn't have avionics, they didn't have anything. You know, it was just basically like a, you know, a Grub 103, you know, with no instruments on it. After that, the challenge was to, that was September, five years ago, and it was, the challenge was to, or, or four and a half years ago, was to then in nine months or so to finish everything else and to be able to go to Argentina. And we were able to, we were able to finish everything and go, go to Argentina. We just got there really late. So the first season was kind of a bummer because we couldn't fly over 34,000 feet. And we had some technical, some technical uh, problems, but not nothing huge. But nevertheless, the first year we came back and we had a lot of people saying, well, what you're trying to do is crazy. This is never going to work. Almost poking, making fun of us, saying, well, big deal, 34,000 feet. Well, you can go to the, the Sierras here in Minden and, and so on and, and fly to that altitude. So we did some more improvements. And the second year, we were able to go higher. You know, we, we beat the world record that belonged to Perlin 1 and went to 52,000 feet. And then uh, the third year, last year, we, we broke three three altitude world records in, in seven days. You know, uh, Jim Payne and Morgan went to uh, 62,000 feet. I'm rounding up here the numbers at 62,000 feet, and we celebrated. We were so happy. And then two days later, Jim Payne and I went to 66,000 feet. Oh, wow. And then four days later, Jim and Tim went to 76,000 feet. <laughs> 
Oh, on the, my. <laughs> uh, on the last flight, just a week after that record, uh, Jim Payne and I flew, and we knew we could go to 80,000 that day or, or maybe a little higher. But we the decision was to either go higher or go faster. And the safer thing to th- create a, a, a better envelope, non-envelope, was to go faster. And so we did. We went to we went to uh, Mach 0.5, which is the fastest a glider has ever flown. And that was the last last fly of last year. So this year, the, the goal would be to reach 90,000 feet. And that would be the ceiling, the operational ceiling of the Perlin 2 aircraft. Now, why is that the ceiling, the 90,000? Well, our airplane has a maximum calculated uh, forward speed of Mach 0.62. And uh, what happened at Mach, Mach 0.62 is over the winds at some places, the uh, local flow is reaching 0.9 Mach. So if we went higher just to sustain us, we will need a higher forward speed, which will create a transonic and maybe even supersonic flow over part of, parts of the wind. And that would be uh, not a good day no, <laughs> for us. No. No, for a straight wind, yeah, for a straight wind airplane. So that's why, you know, we're the, the wave we believe goes higher. Um, I mean, we know it goes higher to about 120,000 feet in a good day. So in theory, mm. we could go faster if we had a different wind. And that, that could be maybe Perland 3. So you go to Argentina because the conditions are the best there. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically, uh, to have a stratospheric wave, you have to be in a place where you have... Uh, winds above the tropopause and that happens only on our planet in two places the, the arctic with the polar vortex it, and the antarctica with the polar vortex on the southern hemisphere you could have a stratospheric wave in over parts of sweden and even russia but it's not as strong doesn't go as high and it's complicated because you have to go in winter and winter conditions in those places will be minus 30, minus 40, lots of precipitation. So the southern hemisphere, no, not only you have over El Calafate, Argentina, you have a stronger polar vortex that produces stratospheric wave that goes higher, but also the, the conditions on the ground are not as bad. It's winter when we go there, which is our summer, and you know, you have days where it snows and so on, but but a lot of the days are blue days, you know, uh, blue sky, uh, temperature is maybe five, six degrees uh, uh, Celsius, you know, 40 Fahrenheit or so. And it's quite the, 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 the correct conditions for us to fly. Now, is there a window as far as the days? Do you have a certain amount of days where you can grab what you need to grab to go that high? Yeah, so basically the polar vortex goes around all year long. But when it's stronger, it's in winter, right? Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're on the northern hemisphere uh, polar vortex or the southern. So the months where you have this polar vortex are July, August, and September, which is their, their winter months. And then what we need is wave that is in this in the normal atmosphere through the tropopause aligned with the polar vortex and that happens in our experience out of those 90 days maybe 10 12 14 15 days okay 
Okay, uh, I wow. think the, fr the first year, I think it happened about three times and we couldn't connect any of the days. The second year, it happened about three or four times and we were able to connect one time. And that time we, we were able to uh, capture the, the first of the world records. And this last year, we had about maybe 10 days of wave and we were able to connect about five times. Now, uh, out of those days that all of those that the winds align, you know, from the surface all the way to 100,000 feet or so, then you need something else, which is good weather. You need a BMC, uh, you know, conditions, no precipitation. And then winds on the ground that are not excessive. There were days where there was wave that aligned, but the surface winds were over 50 knots. Oh, so my. We, we couldn't go. And then there's days where everything works, but you got too many clouds. Uh, so you cannot go either. So out of the 90 days, you might have eight days where all of the winds align. And then out of those eight days, you might only have four where you also have winds to land and take off and clouds that are less than, let's say, one eighth coverage or something like that. So I, I sometimes get aggravated when it rains, you know, for a couple weekends. But, you know, I have like all summer and here you all have you know, put a lot of time and effort into this and you literally only have sometimes a couple of days and then you have to wait till the following year, correct? Correct. That is absolutely correct. We've been developing models to predict this wave, you know, whether it's aligned and where is it going to be, you know, and, and all of those things. And I will say the first year we were predicting correctly about 25% of the time. But the second year, we were predicting correctly about 50% of the time. And now we're predicting correctly about 75% of the time. So oh, as, we, as we go farther and farther, we are better at predicting. Uh, the models keep getting better and better. And then so we have better ways to not only predict, but then to align ourselves with the windows, that, those opportunities. Because like I said, it's not just the winds, it's whether there's humidity or not. And whether, you know, are you going to be able to come back and land or you're going to come back and have 55 knots of crosswind and not be able to land? You know. When you're descending after you get to that altitude, how long does it take to descend to get back down to the airfield? If you descend in a hurry, you could do it probably in about 30, 30 minutes or so. We take about an hour to an hour and a half because a lot of the humidity on the cockpit inside the Perlin ends up being frost on the windows. So we have defrosters and all of that, but at the end of the day, what works best is to hang around around eight, 10,000 feet for 20 minutes and pass the controls back and forth. And basically with a towel, clean the frost of the windows. That's what works the absolutely best. Uh, very low, very so low tech solution. Because the temperatures up there, well, obviously are very cold. Do you have an idea what the temperatures are? Yeah, yeah. We have all kinds of sensors that tell us the temperature. Temperature, uh, the lowest temperatures we're seeing are somewhere around minus 110 Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. That is and, crazy cold. Yeah. And inside the cockpit, we're about minus 10, minus 5 or so. You know, so it gets really cold. We have heated clothing. That's how we heat ourselves. But the cockpit itself is not heated. You know, it, it will take too much battery power to do so. So this, the cabin of Perlin 2, from what I understand, is pressurized. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
But Perlin one was not. They were wearing spacesuits, correct? Correct. Yeah, they borrow some uh, pre- pressurized uh, garments uh, from NASA. Uh, we we fly with a system that is uh, the the cockpit is pressurized to sixteen thousand feet to pressurize your body tissue, and then we have a secondary system which is uh, uh, what you breathe, which is a closed loop rebreather system where we are rebreathing our own oxygen and it's very close to 100 percent oxygen so it's recycling correct constantly yeah so you're able this to is, keep breathing yeah and this both systems were pioneered by by perlan in-house we came up with the system we manufacture most of the parts and we tested it and it's been working really well now i know the perlan project is you're trying to you know reach new altitudes and make records but i'm sure there's other objectives to the program yeah the the records are you know the records are good because they get you funding and exposure right you know you you when when you get to 80 90,000 feet you know you you make a, a lot of magazines want to feature feature your story and talk to you and so on and that translating into funding but the real objective of the perlan is is scientific exploration it's also to inspire students to show them that basically science technology engineering and mathematics can do things like what we're doing and that you know the whole world is not explored yet you know we haven't we haven't done things like what we what we're doing with the perlan you know, we're, we're looking at climate uh, through wet weather patterns that ha- have to do with the polar vortex. Uh, we're looking at radiation, ozone levels, and many other measurements. Perlan is more a capsule than, a, than an airplane, and it's more a, of a scientific laboratory than anything else. I mean, we're, we're loaded with sensors, and we're looking at all kinds of stuff. We're also doing aeronautical research, you know, high high level, uh, high altitude, I'm sorry, uh, aerodynamics are not really well explored. If you if you think about it right now, the airplane that flies the highest of any aircraft, subsonic, doesn't have an engine, it's the Perlin. Uh, the only airplane that flies higher than us, the SR-71, uses a lot of power and it has to go supersonic to stay at those altitudes. So there's something to say about an airplane that can go to 90,000 feet and yet do that by flying 40 knots. Wow, because that's all you're doing about 40 knots. Indicated, correct. Yeah, true aerospeed is is about seven times that much. Right, because the air is much thinner and it it calculates different when you're at those altitudes. Yeah, Uh, true aerospeed is closer to, you know, it depends on what speed we're doing, but 300 knots or so. That is amazing. As a glider pilot myself, I guess my question is, you would have to get towed up just like we do. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. The first, the first year and second year, we use, uh, you know, basically a pony, and, and we will go up to about ten thousand feet. And once that we thought that we were established on wave, we'll release and just climb from there. We were having so much trouble uh, getting through the tropopause, and it was taking so long that. We thought that the thing to do would be to tow directly into the uh, into the stratospheric wave, which starts somewhere between 35 and 45,000 feet. So we were able to this year, last year, on our season number three, to bring a very special top plane. Basically, we took a, a Grop 520, which is a turboprop with almost a thousand horsepower, 
with a wind that is 118 feet wide, uh, put a, a tow system on it, and tow with that directly to over 40,000 feet, and then release there. Uh, the, there was nothing in it for us to fly between 10 and 40,000 feet. Nothing to explore. Uh, it was well as established what we knew already, but it will save us three and a half hours of time. And so we oh, thought wow. this, this will be the, the way of doing it. And it's, it paid dividends because, uh, you know, like I said, we tried six or seven times last year and we were able to connect 90% of the time. So how far, as far as altitude, I guess, how far away would you be from reaching what you would think about as space, outer space? Well, it, it, you know, a lot of the vehicles like balloons and, you know, the SR-71 and, and so on, that fly in the uh, middle to high uh, stratosphere, so basically between 80,000 and, and 130,000 feet, uh, they're called the edge of a space, right? And one of the reasons I think is it's just because if you look at pictures, it does look like you're in a space. You know, you, you, you see a little bit of the curvature of the Earth. The sky is very black. Uh, uh, several people ha have asked me if we doctor the pictures, and we don't at all. Um, and so people call it edge of space. In reality, you're not on the edge of space at all. You know, space uh, starts, you know, if you ask the Air Force at 50 miles, and if you ask um, FII, uh, 62 miles. So it's, it's quite above, above where we are. However, however, at, at 90,000 feet, you're above 98.3 uh, or 98.5 percent of the atmosphere. So there's there's almost no nothing left. To where you're you're almost weightless. No, well, <laughs> we're, it, the atmosphere, uh, the gas content on the atmosphere has nothing to do with being weightless. Um, okay. If if you're in the International Space Station. Uh, the only reason why you're weightless is because you're in orbit and so you're in a constant falling. The uh, the actual gravitational force in the International Space Station is actually uh, 92%, I believe. Uh, so it's, it's pretty close to what it is on Earth. It's just because they're falling. The gravitational force in Perlan at 90,000 feet, I believe, is just under 99%. So uh, I weighed about 210 pounds myself, and at 90,000 feet, I guess I lost about 1%, so I'm a little lighter. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've been trying to lose weight, so <laughs> going to 90,000 feet might be uh, the way to do it. Yeah. So can you tell me about the Perlin 2 glider itself? Like, how much room do you have to move around? Sure. So... Uh, Perlan, uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder for the front guy is about 32 inches, uh, 31. And on the back seat is about 34 and a half inches wide. So it's quite roomy. You recline a little more than on a normal glider, maybe by five degrees. So you're, you're laying down a little more, uh, which makes it very comfortable for long flights. Uh, unfortunately, you carry so much gear so many electronics and, and so much stuff that uh, it feels quite claustrophobic. It's uh, I describe it to somebody in an interview once as uh, if you see, you know, the 1970s uh, Russian cosmonauts 
going into the soldiers and and they put so much stuff on them uh, and then they close the the door the hatch uh, it feels like that I and mean, you you can barely move because you got so much stuff and like in a conventional uh, glider you don't have all the light coming in it's a lot darker inside yeah because you have like those from looking at the pictures you have like the round windows kind of almost like yeah correct more like you said it's more like a capsule yes yeah um so there's not a lot of space even though that is roomier than than a conventional glider uh not by much of course maybe maybe a couple of inches wider uh and then the the flight controls are quite quite heavy especially uh on the ailerons so there's there's a lot of friction on the system so it, it will make a for a really a bad thermaline glider uh, we have thermal. Uh, right. We have thermal with it. It's it's not designed for that. It's designed to to fly well uh, above sixty thousand feet, and that's what it does. It's amazing that we we did all these calculations, and then once that you're at you know high fly levels, it flies it flies better than how it flies uh, close to the ground. So the controls get lighter the higher up you you go. Yeah, they get lighter. They're they're always heavy, especially you know compared to any glider uh, I ever flown. They're quite quite heavy, especially on laterally. You know the ailerons. You know we have uh, counter masses on the ailerons, and the wind is so long. The surfaces are really big, really far away from you. There's a lot of friction on the system, and then you got these huge counter counterweights on it, and um, for balance and purposes and it takes it takes quite a bit of muscle to to make a turn yeah i would imagine with the flight controls being that heavy does it take a while to get up to those altitudes uh in a good day you can you can reach sixty thousand in two hours in a bad day three or four hours we're trying not to fly longer than seven hours but we could fly up to maybe eight and a half or so that's a lot of work it's a lot of flying yeah, most of the flying is done from the front seat uh, because you you have no visibility on the back seat almost whatsoever, and uh, uh, it's quite demanding. Uh, I know Jim Payne uh, ends up being it's, it's quite fatiguing. So your next journey will be back to Argentina to do it again in what the fall? Uh, late July we go there uh, for okay. ten weeks uh, until the end of September, and uh, the goal is. 90,000 feet and um, and to carry the experiments that, that we're taking with us and to do some science and we're very excited about it. We've done some uh, modifications this year, like every year we we improve the glider based on the experience, on the past uh, season experience. And uh, we're also hoping to fly in Minden some this year in late April uh, and May. So discovering gliders, it took you took you to an amazing journey really i mean yeah it's a it's a great community to start with uh you know there's a lot of uh, there's a real brotherhood among people that fly gliders and um it's also a, a great community because they love to share you know I, I i i cannot tell you how lucky i feel that i met bruce and several other people at the tampa bay soaring society how generous they were with their time uh, with their knowledge it was just it's just great great community of people also i I love the fact that the the sport of soaring is based around clubs 
that is not based on money, that is based on people trying to do uh, what they can for their for their uh, flying club, and uh, you know, great things come out of it. You know, uh, mentoring really does work well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's hard. There's there's very few things not to like. I could mention one thing that that took me by surprise within within this community, which was you know I came from professional flying and you know I flew airliners and and other other vehicles and the safety thing you know it's not like it's probably one of our weakest points on on soaring. We don't we're not we don't have great oversight from the FAA. It's kind of like, well, we'll leave those guys alone, you know. <laughs> and so we, we could do a better job monitoring ourselves. But other than that, I mean, I think uh, everything else is that I, that I will have to say about gliders is it's all good. You know, people are just, they want to share the experience with you. There's nothing better than going flying with somebody else. Whether you know them or not, it, it's always a good time. Yeah, it's definitely always a good day when you're flying in the gliders, when you're hanging out at the glider port. And I, you know, I usually ask what's one of your most <laughs> memorable flights, but it's got to be Perlin. No, it's actually probably not Perlin, to be honest. Uh, uh, oh, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, per- Perlin has been great. And yeah, the, the day of, of my world record, uh, uh, you know, altitude wise was fantastic. But the one that sticks in my mind is a, it's a, it's a cross-country fly that lasted about 14 and a half hours with Jim Payne. And we ended up doing about 2,100 kilometers. And the beauty of that fly up and down the Sierras, it just totally took me by surprise. I'd done some flying there, but this, this particular fly was just really kind of probably the, the most beautiful memory I have. Perlon is always exciting because what you're doing and, and all of that. And... Uh, uh, and, and of course, you know, it's hard not to have it in my top 10, sort of speak. But Berlin itself, the flying is not very romantic. It's you're you're really on task. You're really concentrated. Uh, there's you're tense. You, you have very little visibility, especially from where I see it on the back. And you're running flight tests. So you're constantly going on your test car to the next point and all of that. So yeah, when you get to the apogee of, of the day, the highest point, yeah, you you change controls, you take pictures of the outside, you take a couple of selfies and you come down. But other than that, the rest of of the flies is, is very much uh, uh, hard work. So a lot a lot of work and not so much uh, casual joy flying as we would like to do down here when we're at lower altitudes and yeah, flying in yeah, our gliders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's still a remarkable flight. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you land and and the fire department was, you know, putting their sirens on and the tower is giving you signals and you got a, a bunch of people waiting for you. And, you know, you come out on the runaway and open the hatches and, you know, and, and people are applauding and just everybody has a huge smile in their face. And you're just happy to to that everything went fine and not, no problems. You're alive. <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, but it's not very romantic. You know, it's not <laughs> right. like, you know, flying over the Sierras from Tegachepi to Susanville, that that's something special to be able to to see all that scenery around you and the lakes and the peaks and the snow and the 14 hours go by like super fast. I agree when I'm in the glider and I haven't had I haven't had a flight near that length. But when I'm flying, I do kind of lose track of time. I just 
I'm kind of in awe and, you know, whether I'm with a red-tailed hawk or just down on the ridge, you know, doing some ridge soaring. Yeah, I get lost and lost in time. And it's it's just amazing how that happens. But it's it's a beautiful thing. It, it really is. It really is. So all the flying you've done and all the experiences you've had, if someone were to ask you, you know, I'm thinking about getting into flying, what would you say to them? I would say that that I will try to encourage them to get into flying and I will recommend that the best, hands down, the best way to get involved and it's a cheap way of doing it is uh, to start with gliders. First of all, it makes you a better pilot. If you're a mediocre glider pilot, that will help you being a better pilot on anything with an engine. And so, and it's hard not to like flying gliders. It's hard not to, even a, even a single tour around the pattern, you know, release and come back and land. That's, that's already a, a good day. So definitely I would say, check it out, go find, find a club. They're all over the United States and go and talk to the people. And you're going to get so much, so many stories, so much feedback from the people there that you'll probably at least try it. And then, of course, right now we're finally, since I became a pilot in the 80s, I've been hearing about this shortage of pilot and pilots, and it was never, never a, a real thing. But for the first time, there is a shortage of pilots and salaries are up and you can become a professional pilot if you want this as a career. Yeah, now is the time to definitely do it for sure. Miguel, I greatly appreciate your time today this has been uh, an amazing amazing interview and some some great stories sure thank you for having me and i will encourage if you're a if you're a glider pilot at, at least once you have to get to Minden and get to to fly on wave one of the instructors will take you it's not very expensive and it will be probably the fly of your lifetime so if you have time and you have the opportunity come to Minden and check it out for yourself well now i'm gonna have to put that on my list miguel oh, you, so. you must definitely do it <laughs> <laughs> i will for sure thank you miguel for joining us today thanks for taking your time we greatly appreciate it i know the listeners greatly appreciate hearing your story as always you can go to www.soaringthesky.com you can drop us a line if you have any questions you just want to say hi if you're a pilot and you want to share your stories We'd love to hear them. And if you want any other information about soaring, a great place to go, as always, is the SSA.org. Everything you need to know is going to be right there. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time with another great interview right here on Soaring the Sky.